Deductive Logic by George William Joseph Stock, M.A. Part 1 of Terms Chapter 3 of the Division of Terms Number 86 The following scheme presents to the eye the chief divisions of terms. Term Division of terms according to their place in thought. Subject term Attributive According to the kind of thing signified. Abstract, concrete. According to quantity in extension. Singular, common. According to quality. Positive, privative, negative. According to number of meanings. Univocal, equivocal. According to the number of things involved in the name. Absolute, Relative. According to number of quantities. Connotative, non-connotative. Subject, term, and attributive. 87. By a subject term is meant any term which is capable of standing by itself as a subject. Example, ribbon, horse. 88. Attributives can only be used as predicates, not as subjects. Example, cherry-colored, galloping. These can only be used in conjunction with other words, syncategorimatically, to make up a subject. Thus, we can say, a cherry-colored ribbon is becoming, or a galloping horse is dangerous. 89. Attributives are contrivances of language whereby we indicate that a subject has a certain attribute. Thus, when we say, this paper is white, we indicate that the subject, paper, possesses the attribute whiteness. Logic, however, also recognizes as attributives terms which signify the non-possession of attributes. Not white is an attributive equally with white. 90. An attributive, then, may be defined as a term which signifies the possession or non-possession of an attribute by a subject. 91. It must be carefully noticed that attributives are not names of attributes, but names of the things which possess the attributes, in virtue of our knowledge that they possess them. Thus, white is the name of all the things which possess the attribute whiteness, and virtuous is a name, not of the abstract quality virtue itself, but of the men and actions which possess it. It is clear that a term can only properly be said to be a name of those things whereof it can be predicated. Now, we cannot intelligibly predicate an attributive of the abstract quality or qualities the possession of which it implies. We cannot, for instance, predicate the term learned of the abstract quality of learning, but we may predicate it of the individuals Varro and Virgil. Attributives, then, are to be regarded as names, not of the attributes which they imply, but of the things in which those attributes are found. 92. Attributives, however, are names of things in a less direct way than that in which subject terms may be the names of the same things. Attributives are names of things only in predication, whereas subject terms are names of things in or out of predication. The terms horse and bucephalus are names of certain things.
in this case animals, whether we make any statement about them or not. But the terms swift and fiery only become names of the same things in virtue of being predicable of them. When we say horses are swift, or Bucephalus was fiery, the terms swift and fiery become names respectively of the same things as horse and Bucephalus. This function of attributives as names in a secondary sense is exactly expressed by the grammatical term noun-adjective. An attributive is not directly the name of anything. It is a name added on in virtue of the possession, by a given thing, of a certain attribute, or, in some cases, the non-possession. 93. Although attributives cannot be used as subjects, there is nothing to prevent a subject term from being used as a predicate, and so assuming for the time being the functions of an attributive. When we say Socrates was a man, we convey to the mind the idea of the same attributes which are implied by the attributive human, but those terms only are called attributives which can never be used except as predicates. 94. This division into subject terms and attributives may be regarded as a division of terms according to their place in thought. Attributives, as we have seen, are essentially predicates, and can only be thought of in relation to the subject, whereas the subject is thought of for its own sake. Abstract and Concrete Terms 95. An abstract term is the name of an attribute. Example, whiteness, multiplication, act, purpose, explosion. Footnote. Since things cannot be spoken of except by their names, there is a constantly recurring source of confusion between the thing itself and the name of it. Take, for instance, whiteness. The attribute whiteness is a thing. The word whiteness is a term. 96. A concrete term is the name of a substance. Example, a man, this chair, the soul, God. 97. Abstract terms are so-called as being arrived at by a process of abstraction. What is meant by abstraction will be clear from a single instance. The mind, in contemplating a number of substances, may draw off or abstract its attention from all their other characteristics and fix it only on some point or points which they have in common. Thus, in contemplating a number of three-cornered objects, we may draw away our attention from all their other qualities and fix it exclusively upon their three-corneredness, thus constituting the abstract notion of triangle. Abstraction may be performed equally well in the case of a single object, but the mind would not originally have known on what points to fix its attention, except by comparison of individuals. 98. Abstraction, too, may be performed upon attributes as well as substances. Thus, having by abstraction already arrived at the notion of triangle, square, and so on, we may fix our attention upon what these have in common, and so rise to the higher abstraction of figure. As thought becomes more complex, we may have abstraction on abstraction and attributes of attributes. But however many steps may intervene, attributes may always be traced back to substances at last. For attributes of attributes can mean at bottom nothing but the coexistence of attributes in or in connection with the same substances. 99. 
We have said that abstract terms are so called as being arrived at by abstraction, but it must not be inferred from this statement that all terms which are arrived at by abstraction are abstract. If this were so, all names would be abstract except proper names of individual substances. All common terms, including attributes, are arrived at by abstraction, but they are not therefore abstract terms. Those terms only are called abstract, which cannot be applied to substances at all. The terms man and human are names of the same substance, of which Socrates is a name. Humanity is a name only of certain attributes of that substance, namely those which are shared by others. All names of concrete things, then, are concrete, whether they denote them individually or according to classes, and whether directly and in themselves, or indirectly, as possessing some given attribute. 100. By a concrete thing is meant an individual substance conceived of with all its attributes about it. The term is not confined to material substances. A spirit, conceived of under personal attributes, is as concrete as plum pudding. 101. Since things are divided exhaustively into substances and attributes, it follows that any term which is not the same of a thing capable of being conceived to exist by itself must be an abstract term. Individual substances can alone be conceived to exist by themselves. All their qualities, actions, passions, and interrelations, all their states, and all events with regard to them, presuppose the existence of these individual substances. All names, therefore, of such things as those just enumerated are abstract terms. The term action, for instance, is an abstract term, for how could there be action without an agent? The term act is also equally abstract for the same reason. The difference between action and act is not the difference between abstract and concrete, but the difference between the name of a process and the name of the corresponding product. Unless acts can be conceived to exist without agents, they are as abstract as the action from which they result. 102. Since every term must be either abstract or concrete, it may be asked, are attributives abstract or concrete? The answer, of course, depends upon whether they are names of substances or names of attributes. But attributives, it must be remembered, are never directly names of anything in the way that subject terms are. They are only names of things in virtue of being predicated of them. Whether an attributive is abstract or concrete depends on the nature of the subject of which it is asserted or denied. When we say, this man is noble, the term noble is concrete, as being the name of a substance. But when we say this act is noble, the term noble is abstract, as being the name of an attribute. 103. The division of terms into abstract and concrete is based upon the kind of thing signified. It involves no reference to actual existence. There are imaginary as well as real substances. Logically, a centaur is as much a substance as a horse. Terms. 104. A singular term is a name which can be applied in the same sense to one thing only, example, John, Paris, the capital of France, this pen. 105. 
A common term is a name which can be applied in the same sense to a class of things. Example, man, metropolis, pen. In order that a term may be applied in the same sense to a number of things, it is evident that it must indicate attributes which are common to all of them. The term John is applicable to a number of things, but not in the same sense, as it does not indicate attributes. 106. Common terms are formed, as we have seen already, see number 99, by abstraction, that is, by withdrawing the attention from the attributes in which individuals differ and concentrating it upon those which they have in common. 107. A class need not necessarily consist of more than two things. If the sun and the moon were the only heavenly bodies in the universe, the word heavenly body would still be a common term as indicating the attributes which are possessed alike by each. 108. This being so, it follows that the division of terms into singular and common is as exhaustive as the preceding ones, since a singular term is the name of one thing and a common term of more than one. It is indifferent whether the thing in question be a substance or an attribute, nor does it matter how complex it may be, so long as it is regarded by the mind as one. 109. Since every term must thus be either singular or common, the members of the preceding divisions must find their place under one or both heads of this one. Subject terms may plainly fall under either head of singular or common, but attributives are essentially common terms. Such names as green, gentle, incongruous are applicable, strictly in the same sense, to all the things which possess the attributes which they imply. 110. Are abstract terms, then, it may be asked, singular or common? To this question we reply, that depends upon how they are used. The term virtue, for instance, in one sense, namely, as signifying moral excellence in general without distinction of kind, is strictly a singular term as being the name of one attribute. But, as applied to different varieties of moral excellence, justice, generosity, gentleness, and so on, it is a common term as being a name which is applicable in the same sense to a class of attributes. Similarly, the term color, in a certain sense, signifies one unvarying attribute possessed by bodies, namely, the power of affecting the eye, and in this sense it is a singular term. But, as applied to the various ways in which the eye may be affected, it is evidently a common term, being equally applicable to red, blue, green, and every other color. As soon as we begin to abstract from attributes, the higher notion becomes a common term in reference to the lower. By a higher notion is meant one which is formed by a further process of abstraction. The terms red, blue, green, etc. are arrived at by abstraction from physical objects. Color is arrived at by abstractions from them and contains nothing but what is common to all. It, therefore, applies in the same sense to each and is a common term in relation to them. 111. A practical test as to whether an abstract term in any given case is being used as a singular or common term is to try whether the indefinite article or the sign of the plural can be attached to it. The term number, as the name of a single attribute of things, admits of neither of these adjuncts. 
But to talk of a number, or the numbers, 2, 3, 4, etc., at once, marks it as a common term. Similarly, the term unity denotes a single attribute, admitting of no shades of distinction. But when a writer begins to speak of the unities, he is evidently using the word for a class of things of some kind or other, namely certain dramatical proprieties of composition. Proper Names and Designations 112. Singular terms may be subdivided into proper names and designations. 113. A proper name is a permanent singular term applicable to a thing in itself. A designation is a singular term devised for the occasion or applicable to a thing only insofar as it possesses some attribute. 114. Homer is a proper name. This man, the author of the Iliad, are designations. 115. The number of things, it is clear, is infinite. For granting that the physical universe consists of a definite number of atoms, neither one more or one less, still we are far from having exhausted the possible number of things. All the manifold material objects, which are made up by the various combinations of these atoms, constitute separate objects of thought, or things, and the mind has further an indefinite power of conjoining and dividing these objects so as to furnish itself with materials of thought, and also of fixing its attention by abstraction upon attributes so as to regard them as things, apart from the substances to which they belong. 116. This being so, it is only a very small number of things which are constantly obtruding themselves upon the mind that have singular terms permanently set apart to denote them. Human beings, some domestic animals, and divisions of time and place have proper names assigned to them in most languages. Examples John, Mary, Grip, January, Easter, Belgium, Brussels, the Thames, Ben Nevis, Beside these, all abstract terms, when used without reference to lower notions, are of the nature of proper names being permanently set apart to denote certain special attributes. Example, benevolence, veracity, imagination, indigestibility, retrenchment. 117. But the needs of language often require a singular term to denote something which has not had a proper name assigned to it. This is effected by taking a common term and so limiting it as to make it applicable under the given circumstances to one thing only. Such a limitation may be effected in English by prefixing a demonstrative or the definite article or by appending a description. Example, this pen, the sofa, the last rose of summer. When a proper name is unknown or for some reason unavailable, Recourse may be had to a designation, example, the honorable member who spoke last but one. Collective terms, 118. The division of terms into singular and common, being like those which have preceded it fundamental and exhaustive, there's evidently no room in it for a third class of collective terms, nor is there any distinct class of terms to which that name can be given. The same term may be used collectively or distributively in different relations. Thus, the term library, when used of the books which compose a library, is collective, 
when used of various collections of books, as the Bodleian Queen's Library, and so on, it is distributive, which in this case is the same thing as being a common term. 119. The distinction between the collective and distributive use of a term is of importance because the confusion of the two is a favorite source of fallacy. When it is said, the plays of Shakespeare cannot be read in a day, the proposition meets with a very different measure of acceptance according as its subject is understood collectively or distributively. The word all is perfectly ambiguous in this respect. It may mean altogether or each separately, two senses which are distinguished in Latin by totus or cunctus for the collective and omnis for the distributive use. 120. What is usually meant, however, when people speak of a collective term is a particular kind of singular term. 121. From this point of view, singular terms may be subdivided into individual and collective, by an individual term being meant the name of one object, by a collective term the name of several considered as one. This key is an individual term. My bunch of keys is a collective term. 122. A collective term is quite as much the same of one thing as an individual term is, though the thing in question happens to be a group. A group is one thing, if we choose to think of it as one. For the mind, as we have already seen, has an unlimited power of forming its own things or objects of thought. Thus, a particular peak in a mountain chain is as much one thing as the chain itself though physically speaking, it is inseparate from it, just as the chain itself is inseparable from the Earth's surface. In the same way, a necklace is as much one thing as the individual beads which compose it. 123. We have just seen that a collective term is the name of a group regarded as one thing, but every term which is the name of such a group is not necessarily a collective term. London, for instance, is the name of a group of objects considered as one thing, but London is not a collective term, whereas flock, regiment, and senate are. Wherein, then, lies the difference? It lies in this, that flock, regiment, and senate are groups composed of objects which are, to a certain extent, similar, whereas London is a group made up of the most dissimilar objects, streets and squares and squalid slums, fine carriages and dirty faces, and so on. In the case of a true collective term, all the members of the group will come under some one common name. Thus, all the members of the group, flock of sheep, come under the common name sheep. All the members of the group, regiment, under the common name soldier, and so on. 124. The subdivision of singular terms into individual and collective need not be confined to the names of concrete things. An abstract term like scarlet, which is the name of one definite attribute, may be reckoned individual, while a term like human nature, which is the name of a whole group of attributes, would more fitly be regarded as collective. 125. The main division of terms which we have been discussing into singular and collective is based upon their quantity in extension. This phrase will be explained presently. 126. We come now to a threefold division of terms into positive, privative, and negative. It is based upon an implied twofold division into positive and non-positive, 
the latter member being subdivided into privative and negative, as illustrated in the chart below. If this division be extended, as it sometimes is to terms in general, a positive term must be taken to mean only the definite or comparatively definite member of an exhaustible division in accordance with the law of excluded middle, see number 25. Thus, Socrates and man are positive as opposed to not Socrates and not man. 127. The chief value of the division, however, and especially of the distinction drawn between privative and negative terms, is in relation to attributives. From this point of view, we may define the three classes of terms as follows. A positive term signifies the presence of an attribute, example, wise, full. A negative term signifies merely the absence of an attribute, example, not wise, not full. A privative term signifies the absence of an attribute in a subject capable of possessing it. Example, unwise, empty. Footnote. A privative term is usually defined to mean one which signifies the absence of an attribute where it was once possessed or might have been expected to be present. Example, blind. The utility of the slight extension of meaning here assigned to the expression will, it is hoped, prove its justification. 128. Thus, a privative term stands midway in between the other two, being partly positive and partly negative. Negative in so far as it indicates the absence of a certain attribute. Positive in so far as it implies that the thing which is declared to lack that attribute is of such a nature as to be capable of possessing it. A purely negative term conveys to the mind no positive information at all about the nature of the thing of which it is predicated but leaves us to seek for it among the universe of things which fail to exhibit a given attribute. A privative term, on the other hand, restricts us within a definite sphere. The term empty restricts us within the sphere of things which are capable of fullness. That is, if the term be taken in its literal sense, things which possess extension in three dimensions. 129. A positive and negative term, which have the same matter must exhaust the universe between them, example, white and not white, since, according to the law of excluded middle, everything must be either one or the other. To say, however, that a thing is not white is merely to say that the term white is inapplicable to it. Not white may be predicated of things which do not possess extension as well as those which do. Such a pair of terms as white and not white, in their relation to one another, are called contradictories. 130. Contrary terms must be distinguished from contradictory. Contrary terms are those which are most opposed under the same head. Thus, white and black are contrary terms, being the most opposed under the same head of color. Virtuous and vicious, again, are contraries, being the most opposed under the same head of moral quality. 131. A positive and a privative term in the same matter will always be contraries. Example, wise and unwise, safe and unsafe. But contraries do not always assume the shape of positive and privative terms, but may both be positive in form. Examples, wise and foolish, safe and dangerous. 132. Words which are positive in form are often privative in meaning and vice versa. 
This is the case, for instance, with the word safe, which connotes nothing more than the absence of danger. We talk of a thing involving positive danger and of its being positively unsafe to do so and so. Unhappy, on the other hand, signifies the presence of actual misery. Similarly, in Latin, inutilis signifies not merely that there is no benefit to be derived from a thing, but that it is positively injurious. All such questions, however, are for the grammarian or lexicographer and not for the logician. For the latter, it is sufficient to know that corresponding to every term which signifies the presence of some attribute, there may be imagined another, which indicates the absence of the same attribute, where it might be possessed, and a third, which indicates its absence, whether it might be possessed or not. 133. Negative terms proper are formed by the prefix not, or non, and are mere figments of logic. We do not, in practice, require to speak of the whole universe of objects minus those which possess a given attribute or collection of attributes. We have often occasion to speak of things which might be wise and are not, but seldom, if ever, of all things other than wise. 134. Every privative attribute has, or may have, a corresponding abstract term, and the same is the case with negatives, for the absence of an attribute is itself an attribute. Corresponding to empty, there is emptiness. Corresponding to not full, there may be imagined the term not fullness. 135. The contrary of a given term always involves the contradictory, but it involves positive elements as well. Thus, black is not white, but it is something more besides. Terms which, without being directly contrary, involve a latent contradiction are called repugnant, example red and blue, all terms, whatever, which signify attributes that exclude one another may be called incompatible. 136. The preceding division is based on what is known as the quality of terms, a positive term being said to differ in quality from a non-positive one. Univocal and equivocal terms. 137. A term is said to be univocal when it has one and the same meaning wherever it occurs. A term which has more than one meaning is called equivocal. Jampot, hydrogen, are examples of univocal terms, pipe and suit of equivocal. 138. This division does not properly come within the scope of logic, since it is a question of language, not of thought. From the logician's point of view, an equivocal term is two or more different terms, for the definition in each sense would be different. 139. Sometimes a third member is added to the same division under the head of analogous terms. The word sweet, for instance, is applied by analogy to things so different in their own nature, as a lump of sugar, a young lady, a tune, a poem, and so on. Again, because the head is the highest part of man, the highest part of a stream is called, by analogy, the head. It is plainly inappropriate to make a separate class of analogous terms. Rather, terms become equivocal by being extended by analogy from one thing to another. Absolute and Relative Terms 140. An absolute term is a name given to a thing without reference to anything else. 141. 
A relative term is a name given to a thing with direct reference to some other thing. 142. Hodge and man are absolute terms. Husband, father, shepherd are relative terms. Husband conveys a direct reference to wife, father to child, shepherd to sheep. Given one term of a relation, the other is called the correlative. Example, subject is the correlative of ruler, and conversely, ruler of subject. The two terms are also spoken of as a pair of correlatives. 143. The distinction between relative and absolute applies to attributives as well as subject terms. Greater, near, like are instances of attributives which everyone would recognize as relative. 144. A relation, it will be remembered, is a kind of attribute differing from a quality in that it necessarily involves more substances than one. Every relation is at bottom a fact, or a series of facts in which two or more substances play a part. A relative term connotes this fact or facts from the point of view of one of the substances, its correlative from that of the other. Thus, ruler and subject imply the same set of facts looked at from opposite points of view. The series of facts itself regarded from either side is denoted by the corresponding abstract terms rule and subjection. 145. It is a nice question whether the abstract names of relations should themselves be considered relative terms. Difficulties will perhaps be avoided by confining the expression relative term to names of concrete things. Absolute, it must be remembered, is a mere negative of relative and covers everything to which the definition of the latter does not strictly apply. Now, it can hardly be said that rule is a name given to a certain abstract thing with direct reference to some other thing, namely subjection. Rather, rule and subjection are two names for identically the same series of facts according to the side from which we look at them. Ruler and subject, on the other hand, are names of two distinct substances, but each involving a reference to the other. 146. This division then may be said to be based on the number of things involved in the name. Cognitive and non-cognitive terms. 147. Before explaining this division, it is necessary to treat of what is called the quantity of terms. Quantity of terms. 148. A term is possessed of quantity in two ways. Number one, in extension. Number two, in intention. Number 149. The extension of a term is the number of things to which it applies. 150. The intention of a term is the number of attributes which it implies. 151. It will simplify matters to bear in mind that the intention of a term is the same thing as its meaning. To take an example, the term man applies to certain things, namely, all the members of the human race that have been, are, or ever will be. This is its quantity in extension. But the term man has also a certain meaning and implies certain attributes, rationality, animality, and a definite bodily shape. 
The sum of these attributes constitutes its quantity in intention. 152. The distinction between the two kinds of quantity possessed by a term is also conveyed by a variety of expressions, which are here appended. Extension equals breadth, equals compass, equals application, equals denotation. Intention equals depth, equals comprehension, equals implication, equals connotation. Of these various expressions, application and implication have the advantage of most clearly conveying their own meaning. Extension and intention, however, are more usual, and neither implication nor connotation is quite exact as a synonym for intention. See number 164. 153. We now return to the division of terms into connotative and non-connotative. 154. A term is said to connote attributes when it implies certain attributes at the same time that it applies to certain things distinct therefrom. Footnote. Originally, connotative was used in the same sense in which we have used attributive, for a word which directly signifies the presence of an attribute and indirectly applies to a subject. In this, its original sense, it was the subject, which was said to be connoted and not the attribute. 155. A term which possesses both extension and intention, distinct from one another, is connotative. 156. A term which possesses no intention, if that be possible, or in which extension and intention coincide, is non-connotative. 157. The subject term man and its corresponding attributive human have both extension and intention distinct from one another. They are therefore connotative, but the abstract term humanity denotes the very collection of attributes which was before connoted by the concrete terms man and human. In this case, therefore, extension and intention coincide, and the term is non-connotative. 158. The above remark must be understood to be limited to abstract terms in their singular sense. When employed as common terms, abstract terms possess both extension and intention distinct from one another. Thus, the term color applies to red, blue, and yellow, and at the same time implies, that is, connotes, the power of affecting the eye. 159. Since all terms are names of things, whether substances or attributes, it is clear that all terms must possess extension, though the extension of singular terms is the narrowest possible as being confined to one thing. 160. Are there, then, any terms which possess no intention? To ask this is to ask, are there any terms which have absolutely no meaning? It is often said that proper names are devoid of meaning, and the remark is, in a certain sense, true. When we call a being by the name man, we do so, because that being possesses human attributes. But when we call the same being by the name John, we do not mean to indicate the presence of any Joanine attributes. We simply wish to distinguish that being in thought and language from other beings of the same kind. Roughly speaking, therefore, proper names are devoid of meaning or intention, but no name can be entirely devoid of meaning, for 
even setting aside the fact, which is not universally true, that proper names indicate the sex of the owner, the mere act of giving a name to a thing implies, at least, that the thing exists, whether in fact or thought. It implies what we may call thinghood, so that every term must carry with it some small amount of intention. 161. From another point of view, however, proper names possess more intention than any other terms. For when we know a person, his name calls up to our minds all the individual attributes with which we are familiar, and these must be far more numerous than the attributes which are conveyed by any common term which can be applied to him. Thus the name John means more to a person who knows him than attorney, conservative, scamp, or vestryman, or any other term which may happen to apply to him. This, however, is the acquired intention of a term and must be distinguished from the original intention. The name John was never meant to indicate the attributes which its owner has, as a matter of fact, developed. He would be John all the time, if he were none of these. 162. Hitherto we have been speaking only of christening names, but it is evident that family names have a certain amount of connotation from the first. For when we dub John with the additional appellation of Smith, we do not give this second name as a mere individual mark, but intend, thereby, to indicate a relationship to other persons. The amount of connotation that can be conveyed by proper names is very noticeable in the Latin language. Let us take for an example the full name of a distinguished Roman. Publius Cornelius Scipio Emilianus Africanus Minor. Here it is only the pronomen, Publius, that can be said to be a mere individual mark, and even this distinctly indicates the sex of the owner. The nomen proper, Cornelius, declares the wearer of it to belong to the illustrious gens Cornelia. The cognomen, Scipio, further specifies him as a member of a distinguished family in that gens. The agnomen, adoptivum, indicates his transference by adoption from one gens to another. The second agnomen recalls the fact of his victory over the Carthaginians, while the addition of the word minor distinguishes him from the former wearer of the same title. The name, instead of being devoid of meaning, is a chapter of history in itself. Homeric epithets, such as the cloud compeller, the earth shaker, are instances of intensive proper names. Many of our own family names are obviously connotative in their origin, implying either some personal peculiarity, example Armstrong, Cruikshank, Courtenay, or the employment, trade, or calling of the original bearer of the name, Smith, Carpenter, Baker, Clark, Leach, Archer, and so on or else his abode, domain, or nationality, as de Cannes, de Montmorency, French, Langley, or simply the fact of descent from some presumably more noteworthy parent as Jackson, Thompson, Fitzgerald, O'Connor, MacDonald, Apjohn, Price, Davids, etc. The question, however, whether a term is connotative or not, has to be decided not by its origin but by its use, we have seen that there are some proper names which, in a rough sense, may be said to possess no intention. 163. The other kind of singular terms, namely designations, see number 113, are obviously cognitive. 
We cannot employ even the simplest of them without conveying more or less information about the qualities of the thing which they are used to denote. When, for instance, we say this table, this book, we indicate the proximity to the speaker of the object in question. Other designations have a higher degree of intention, as when we say the present Prime Minister of England, the honorable member who brought forward this motion tonight. Such terms have a good deal of significance in themselves, apart from any knowledge we may happen to possess of the individual they denote. 164. We have seen that, speaking quite strictly, there are no terms which are non-conative, but, for practical purposes, we may apply the expression to proper names, on the ground that they possess no intention, and to singular abstract terms on the ground that their extension and intention coincide. In the latter case, it is indifferent whether we call the quantity extension or intention. Only we cannot call it connotation, because that implies two quantities distinct from one another. A term must already denote a subject before it can be said to connote its attributes. 165. The division of terms into connotative and non-connotative is based on their possession of one quantity or two. End of chapter. Read by Leonides for lit to go on the web at fcit.usf.edu.